With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit oiebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gell, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews, and please leave comments. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in people under the age of 74. In a 2017 study, routine eye exams led to the diagnosis of over 400,000 new cases of diabetes, demonstrating the importance of yearly and frequent eye exams. Today's guest, Tacoma, Washington, retinal optometrist, Dr. Jay Haney, has dedicated his life to saving diabetics from blindness. Jay is a published author and a national recognized lecturer. Jay, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Karius. Happy to be here. Dr. Haney, I'm really excited to have you. You're one of the giants in our field. And as I talked about, the eye exam is so important. What are some of the clues that could happen during an eye exam that could help us to diagnose uh, diabetes? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Carrie. And, you know, my, my specialty is in retina. So a lot of tonight we're going to talk about, you know, the, the overall health of the eye. But, you know, some of the early clues, uh, just doing a routine eye exam, these patients can have, you know, wide shifts in their prescription. You go in to get a new pair of glasses and there's been a, there's been a significant change in the prescription, which clues us into that something might be going wrong. But more importantly, you know, we're blessed with great technology and we have the ability to, you know, take an image of the retina inside of the eye. We can see the blood vessels, we can see the optic nerve. And there's a lot of times that diabetes is unknown by the patient and we see small little hemorrhages or changes in retinal vasculature, which give us a clue as to screening these patients for diabetes, which leads to, you know, checking their blood sugars, ordering some labs to confirm it. So, we as optometrists are on the front line of seeing folks because a lot of times patients will go to the eye doctor more than their medical doctors. And so looking for those clinical features of early diabetes is very, very important on a dilated eye examination. How about a cataract in a young person? Cataract in a young person is, is an anomaly. And I, you know, I think when we, when we look at you know, what we do as providers and when we see patients in the public and we, we talk to people, you know, we're all, we're all taught what normal is. It's like, you know, normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. And when you see, when you see younger people with atypical, you know, findings in the eye, just like you mentioned, you know, a cataract in a young patient, more specifically, there's, there's actually a diabetic cataract. It's, 
when the lens gets cloudy, there's various portions of the lens and diabetics are, are known to develop these, these spoking like changes in a cataract, which early symptoms can be glare with oncoming headlights. So cataracts in younger people under the age of 50, you have to be thinking about diabetes. So under the age of 50 would be the magic number for you. Yes. So how common is diabetes? And is it, diabetes is getting, there's more people becoming diabetic. If you could explain a little bit about the epidemiology of it and, and some, of the, some of the numbers of the, of, of, of the epidemiology of diabetes. So diabetes is, is becoming very, very common. And some current numbers that have come from the American Diabetes Association, if, if we talk about you know, worldwide, um, diabetes is endemic. But if we just focus on you know, the United States alone, there's over 34 million uh, Americans living with diabetes, which is approximately one in 10. Um, if you look at the, the ages of diabetes, older than age 20, one in 10 adults are living with diabetes. But if you, if you escalate that to, you know, patients over 55, we're running into one in four patients over the age of 55 are living with diabetes. But, you know, Carrie, it's, it's, it's good to know how many people are living with diabetes, you know, one in 10. But, you know, we think about the, the pre-diabetics and folks that are living um, with early signs of diabetes and don't know it, there's three times that amount. So almost 88 to 90 million people have been classified as pre-diabetic, which, you know, these are the patients that have, you know, borderline blood sugars, they haven't been diagnosed uh, with diabetes. And, you know, this is the group that we really need to focus on and talk about lifestyle changes and talk about annual eye exams and screening for complications of diabetes. I mean, diabetes is really a preventable disease in most cases, and the incident of obesity is increasing. How does obesity and diabetes go together? Well, the you say diabetes is a preventable disease, and I would completely agree with that. I think the you know excluding the the genetic inherited type one diabetes, where you actually have a a, a a, a pancreas that is not uh, working properly in the beta cells and becomes insulin resistant. You know, the 90, over 90% 90 of diabetics um, are type two diabetes, which takes a little bit of genetics into consideration, but it really takes the lifestyle into consideration. And there've been some numbers that, you know, obesity trends in, um, you know, globally worldwide and in, in the United States is increasing. And we're starting to see we, we once thought that, you know, type 2 diabetes was, you know, the adult onset diabetes, but, you know, gosh, Carrie, you know, that age is, is really, really dropping. And I'm seeing more type 2 diabetes being diagnosed in the juvenile population due to sedentary lifestyles. Everybody's, um, you know, on phones and tablets and, you know, we're not going outdoors and exercising. So there's a, there's a real problem with obesity trends in the United States and globally, and what's happened is the, the incidence of diabetes is just continuing on the rise. And, you know, there's, there's estimated over 500 um, million people worldwide may be living with diabetes by the year of 2025. Earlier numbers estimated that it would be 300 million by, by 2020. We've already eclipsed that. So obesity is a real problem and increases risk of diabetes through insulin resistance. 
You mentioned before type one, type two. For our audience, if you could explain the difference of type one and autoimmune type, and even adults could get an autoimmune type ladder. If you could explain those different types of diabetes. So type, so type one diabetes is the uh, insulin dependent diabetes, and and these are these are folks that generally have a strong genetic. Um, genetic risk of type 1 diabetes. This is a disease of the pancreas. The pancreas does not secrete insulin. And so these are the patients that are oftentimes diagnosed with diabetes, you know, age 6, age 9, age 10, uh, because their pancreas is not functioning properly. Um, type 2 diabetes is considered the adult onset. And this is a classification of diabetes that is, it's not a lack of insulin, it's just their, their bodies have become resistant to insulin to combat, you know, the glucose levels in the blood. And then the third category is the, the, the tertiary diabetes, which is generally associated with autoimmune diseases. Um, patients who have autoimmune disease oftentimes are treated with prednisone or steroids that impacts the blood glucose levels. Uh, patients who are pregnant have a higher risk of developing elevated glucose levels, but the tertiary diabetes can be managed by just altering the treatment of the autoimmune disease and getting them off of the systemic drugs that are impacting the glucose levels. Yes, you mentioned pre-diabetes before, and I think a pre-diabetes isn't really pre-anything. You know, it's really a very serious condition that could lead to diabetes, and we know of all the the sequela that could happen and the more morbidity and mortality associated with diabetes. So if you could expand a little bit more on pre-diabetes, what would you say the classification if you're getting a blood test? And do we ever find retinal hemorrhages and uh, vascular changes in the eye with somebody who's pre-diabetic? So the old school diagnosis of diabetes was based on a fasting glucose of uh, 65 milligrams per deciliter to 110. And if you had a fasting glucose in that range, then you were considered non-diabetic. The American Diabetes Association really tightened up the, the screening for um, patients at high risk, and they developed this pre-diabetes category, which is any fasting glucose over 100 should be considered pre-diabetic. The, the importance of identifying this group of people is exactly what you said. Most patients who are classified pre-diabetic usually have associated um, uh, comorbidities like hypertension and elevated cholesterol levels and potentially a little bit overweight. And they're being classified as pre-diabetic really out of a warning. I mean, if, if you change your lifestyle then you are going to be in a less risk category of developing complications of diabetes. So the pre-diabetic is, it's the warning shot that's fired. You know, Mrs. Jones, if you continue the lifestyle that you're leading, you will go on to be diagnosed with diabetes and formally need to take medication. You have the ability to change your future by altering the lifestyle. You talk about, you know, retinal hemorrhages and microvascular changes. Uh, in a, in a pre-diabetic. Absolutely. Um, you can see microvascular changes with some of the new technology that we have as eye care providers. You can look at the microvascular changes in the eye a lot better than we once could. And there's actually, um, there's, there's actually a, a term that's being thrown around in retina as, you know, 
the do they have diabetic retinopathy or do they have subclinical diabetic retinopathy, which is you can't see it on an examination, but when you do the special testing like OCT angiography and you look at the capillary level and you look at the microvasculature, we're starting to see changes at the capillary level and microvasculature even before patients have a diagnosis of diabetes. So it's another kind of a, a warning sign that is communicated to primary care physicians. You know, we have OCT angiography in our office, and we're going to talk about that <laughs> in a little while. But many times we'll see, as you just mentioned, capillary dropout. So these people are not, as far as they know, they're not diabetic. And But would we wind up doing an OCT angiography for maybe another reason. And we see that there's capillary dropout and then we, we refer them for blood work. And sure enough, either their insulin levels are high, their two-hour insulin levels are high, or they're in the pre-diabetic range of the A1C between 5.7 and 6.4. Uh, what do we do with those patients? And I know that you're in a referral clinic, so you, you probably see patients when, they're, when the wheels are off the bus. But uh, what do you recommend if you, if you do you have a patient like that and they have capillary dropout, uh, how do we proceed from there? That's a, you know, that's a great point because I think we're all, we're all kind of learning, you know, kind of how, how to navigate this. What, what do we do with a patient who's got kind of borderline glucose levels? but they've got changes at the microvasculature level as we're seeing with OCT angiography. You know, my experience, Carrie, is, um, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of primary care doctors, internal medicine, endocrinologists that are, that are following these patients that, you know, they may be labeling them as a pre-diabetic and they may be kind of counseling them along the way. But if you think about retinal changes that are being able to be seen capillary dropout, microvascular changes, this is an end organ manifestation of diabetes. And in my region, uh, a lot of my uh, physician colleagues, if they're kind of on the fence as to whether patients need to go on medication to lower blood sugars, they will err on the side of what we see on clinical examination to kind of push them one way or the other. It's also a good. It's it's also good to share with patients, you know, the the what we see and the changes that we are seeing, and it may open their eyes to needing to, you know, make their lifestyle a little bit better. So, the 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 early changes that we see really are pushing the the general practitioners to start treatment early for these patients, putting them on a low dose metformin or glucophage or one of the one of the macrolides that used to treat lower the blood sugar. So reducing, reducing risk. The technology is getting so good that we're seeing the capillaries at eight microns, five microns. So we're picking up disease so early that we didn't pick up disease until the disease was much later, you know, 20 years ago. It's changing the way we're practicing. Absolutely. It's, 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 you know, what I, what I like to, to talk with my patients about is, you know, when I when I first started seeing patients in retina 30 years ago, we were more of a reactive profession. I think eye care providers were more reactive, meaning you you wait until a disease manifests itself, until it's become symptomatic, and then you react, and then you treat. We have got to be moving more to a proactive nature in that 
identifying potentially site-threatening conditions before patients ever become symptomatic, we can intervene at that level. Oftentimes, the treatment protocols are much, much less aggressive, and we can put folks on maintenance treatment to stave off kind of what's headed if we do nothing. So we, we are becoming much more proactive. I think that's a great point. I mean, we're picking up disease so early and we could prevent disease. So we could work with the, the dietitians and the nutritionists and exercise physiologists to really help these patients to prevent them from becoming diabetic. Yeah, I mean, diabetic, um, you know, di diabetes in and of itself is, you know, curable in a sense, if you're insulin resistant and it's more related to lifestyle changes and obesity, that is absolutely preventable. But when it comes to, you know, loss of vision and blindness, there's, there's really no reason that diabetes should be the leading cause of blindness, although it, it still is today. But we have so much more available to treat patients early to try to prevent complications that diabetics uh, should continue to have great vision throughout their lives. And we're blessed to have the technology. It's getting patients to understand the need to see a provider. I mean, they've got to go to a provider and get the screening test on an annual basis. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of spooks me a little bit is the online exams where they advertise, just look at your cell phone and we'll give you a new prescription. And then we may not see the patient in an, in an office where they could get imaged for many, many years. And at that time, you know, you look at the possibilities of somebody having glaucoma or diabetes and, you know, macular degeneration. And, and it's really quite scary. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I would agree. But, you know, to your uh, contrary to your point, um, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence and, you know, artificial intelligence for uh, screening for ocular disease is getting is getting better. Uh, we still have, you know, look at your phone. It'll give you a prescription. It'll link you to a website. You pick out the frame you like. You choose tortoise color. Glasses show up and, you know, show up in five days. You know, I don't think we'll ever get away from that. But what I like about artificial intelligence for ocular health, especially retinal disease, is there's going to be those people that prefer to go to a kiosk and get a photograph taken of the eye. And the built-in artificial intelligence is actually going to find patients that have associated retinal problems and then direct them to a provider's care. So I, I'm all for artificial intelligence. I think it needs a lot of work. I think the community needs to understand that it's not a complete eye exam and they need to have screening for glaucoma, like you said. But I think as technology grows, this is going to be better and better for early diagnosis. I think we need to make the distinction between artificial intelligence that could refer to a physician rather than just looking for at a cell phone and sending you a bunch of contact lenses. I agree. I agree that absolutely there has to be, there has to be that differentiation and that's, you know, that's a, that's a battle, but, you know, providers like you and I are, you know, in the, in the trenches trying to educate the, educate the public on what's a complete eye exam and what's not a complete eye exam. So the FDA, um, uh, uh, approved INUC, I think in 2018, which is artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about that and exactly what is that? 
So, so iNook, there, there's actually a second company, uh, the name escapes me now, but, but iNook is basically what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a retinal camera. So it's, it's a camera that's going to take a high resolution photograph of the retina and through artificial intelligence and through building algorithms that detect you know, microvascular changes and hemorrhages in the eye and severe retinopathy, what the artificial intelligence can do is it can, it can identify people who have mild diabetic eye disease as well as potential sight-threatening disease. So it picks up microvascular changes in the very, very early stages. Interestingly enough, there's been a couple of recent uh, reports published to where they, they looked at the artificial intelligence or basically a computer interpreting the images versus retina specialists. And they found that it was more light, it was more accurate coming from the artificial intelligence to identify sight-threatening complications of diabetes and um, mild to moderate diabetic retinopathy. So the computer is doing a better job than a lot of retina specialists out there. And I guess it depends on what camera they use because there's different grades of camera cameras. Some of them, you know, could really get to, you know, uh, eight microns and 10 microns, and maybe some of the cameras aren't quite as good. The resolution isn't, isn't as good. So as I guess the resolution gets better on the, these cameras, they're going to pick up disease quicker. Exactly. And that's, and that's one of the, that's kind of one of the uh, deciding factors on, you know, getting FDA approval is, is comparing artificial intelligence to the human eye. So if you sit down at your computer and you look at a photograph and you grade a disease severity, are you do, are you better than computers? And I think when, when, when looking at cameras and looking at approvals, they're, they're weeding out kind of those, the, the, the cheaper, the less, you know, it's just like our iPhones. Every, every time we get a new iPhone, the camera's gotten better. So, you know, I think they're, they're, they're not going to approve instruments that do a poor job of detecting complications and sight-threatening diseases. And that's why, even though we see artificial intelligence growing, there's only one and maybe two companies that have really impacted eye health, just because the FDA is pretty scrutinous about that. Right. And, and the doctors that do the artificial intelligence that do the, the linking of the eye with the artificial intelligence, of course, are physicians. Correct. And it works properly. Yeah. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit oiebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. So let's talk about the epidemiology of diabetic retinopathy. So, uh, so we know there's about 34 million or so diabetics in the U.S. And of those 34 million, how many, what percentage of those will get diabetic retinopathy? What percentage will get severe diabetic retinopathy? Well, I guess you, you really have to look at, you know, the, the, the different modes of control. And so, you know, if, if you, if you just look at a number of 32, 34.2 million diabetics, how many will get retinopathy? Well, it's going to be directly proportionate to 
the control of the diabetes. And if you have a large group of folks who have very poorly controlled diabetes, their risk of developing complications is going to be much higher than those who have great control of their diabetes. But you know what I tell people and you know what I've looked at is if you take a type 1 diabetic who is insulin dependent, which is the genetics, in the first 20 years, there is very few that have uh, developed retinopathy. So type 1 diabetes is more the longevity of disease, whereas type 2, um, if you look at the 20-year mark, almost 100% of those patients with adult onset or type 2 diabetes has diabetic retinopathy. So I think you have to look at the control of the diabetes, uh, but what's more important is trying to trying to encourage those who are pre-diabetic or who have diabetes to get checked on a yearly basis and have some degree of sense of level of severity. But ultimately, everybody with diabetes will have an impact if they live long enough. I mean, thank God the type one take much longer years because most of those people that are getting type one are, you know, young kids, five years old, 10 years old. And you know, if they were getting severe retinopathy when they were younger, that would really be a disaster. So thank God they have time to work on it and and to be able to get some control of it. Where the type two diabetic, a lot of them have had diabetes for a while and they didn't they didn't realize they had it. And many times, like we talked about before, the first person to diagnose them is the optometrist because we're examining their capillaries at eight microns, seven microns, 12 microns, and we could see little changes. And some of the earliest changes, such as microaneurysms, will be able to see inside their, their eye and be able to make recommendations and lifestyle recommendations so they don't get to become a severe diabetic, get severe diabetic eye disease. Yes, you're right. I mean, the, the good news is the type 1s, um, they're diagnosed early. They have a better prognosis in the first decade or two. Um, and like you said, the, the type 2 or the insulin-resistant diabetics, which is thought to be adult onset, you know, the, the, average, the average patient, the average person diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, it's thought that they've had the disease for a minimum of seven years. Um, and I think there are statistics on what, what's really kind of surprising is um, how many of these patients are diagnosed with diabetes in the emergency room department after they've suffered a heart attack or a stroke, um, they are found to be diabetic. And it's my daughter is an ER nurse. And, you know, she's like, Jay, you know, how do these people not know they have diabetes? They come in with a heart attack and their blood sugars are 350. And the doctor says, how long have you had diabetes? It's like, I don't have diabetes. So um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are diagnosed late. And I think it's because of, you know, public awareness. I think it's because people are not having, they're just not getting access to care and getting the screening that they need, which is why these webinars are great to kind of alert the public that, you know, I need to get my eyes checked on a yearly basis to screen for disease like this. And we can't forget that diabetes is a multi-system organ disease. And as optometrists, we need to work closely with the nephrologists and the endocrinologists and the cardiologists and the neurologists because it actually affects all parts of the all parts of the body. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's the diabetes is the leading cause of blindness um, in working-aged uh, individuals. 
Diabetes is the uh, leading cause of end-stage kidney disease and renal failure. Diabetes is the second leading cause of non-traumatic amputations. Diabetes is, uh, increases a person's risk of stroke and heart attack by two to four fold. So you're absolutely right, uh, which is why being you know, in eye care is so special because we can see what's going on elsewhere in the body. But you know, diabetes is a multi-system organ and a lot of our patients have you know, the endocrinologist or the one managing diabetes, they have kidney specialists, they have neurologists, they have podiatrists because it impacts their feet and you know, they have a whole team of providers, which adds to the socioeconomic burden and cost, which is I think why our focus needs to be more proactive, trying to get this group of pre-diabetics that we've referred to, to kind of change lifestyle so that they don't contribute to the socioeconomic burden of our healthcare system as it is right now. About 60 to 70% of the population, it affects the, uh, the neurology of the body. And there's a lot of optometrists who do electrophysiology to measure the speed of the nerve and to look at the nerve and they're finding uh, they're finding actual, you know, beginning problems with, with the nerves in the eye. If you can make a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, electrophysiology, uh, we have electrophysiology and we use electrophysiology to help guide the treatment of diabetic retinopathy and to help our physicians kind of decide whether to continue to treat um, or whether not. And so if they have continued you know, damage, if you will, and electrophysiology testing is getting worse, they'll continue to treat because it's an ischemic disease. Um, but electrophysiology, it, it, it puts us in another, in another position to be proactive. It's identifying nerve neuronal damage in a person who may or may not know they have diabetes, which then leads them to find out what's causing the, the neuronal damage and diabetes is at the top of the list. So yeah, the, the, the testing that we have being able, being able to, you know, identify complications of disease far before it becomes symptomatic is, is another stint towards being proactive. Yeah. I like that. I like that technology. I mean, the eye is so complicated, you know, between all the vasculature and the nerves and the front of the eye and the lens. I mean, it, it's a very complicated organ, even though it's so small. It, it is, but it, it, it is the window to the soul, right? So, I mean, I tell patients that eventually everything is going to show up in the eye. And, you know, I think the, the technology that we have, if we can get folks to providers with technology, you know, we can diagnose diabetes, for example, far earlier than we once could. And like I said, with, you know, this, this group of patients who have, you know, borderline blood sugars, if they're having microvascular changes, it's going to then tip the scales to start them on therapy to try to prevent progression and complications. And some diabetics have, you know, minimal symptoms, but a lot of them don't even have any symptoms. But what kind of symptoms would a diabetic have? I think the most common symptom, and I think, you know, we as eye care providers, you know, are, are, are taught that some of the most common symptoms when it comes to vision is just fluctuating vision. You know, the lens, the lens in the eye, which is in charge of, of focusing light is, is so impacted by 
variable glucose levels. And so a lot of these patients come in, you know, my vision when I get up in the morning is different than when I'm coming home from work at night. So the biggest symptom, the first, the first symptom is fluctuating vision. Um, once they have retinal findings and they start developing, developing retinopathy, then, you know, they have to be aware of, you know, facial features starting to look distorted, blurry spots in their vision. Um, if they have bleeding in the eye, sometimes they'll see like little pepper specks in their vision or what I try to tell patients, if it looks like somebody splattered paint on a wall, you know, lots of cobwebs or spider webs, that's not normal. Those are symptoms of much, much more advanced disease. But in the beginning, it's just fluctuating vision. I mean, my vision just isn't stable day to day. It's just always changing. That's a high risk um, symptom of diabetes. And let's talk, we talked a little bit about the labs before, but what labs do you perform and do you think are important? I know the hemoglobin A1C is very important. If you could explain that and how do you use that when you're speaking with patients and taking care of patients? So I just saw a patient today, Carrie, uh, that was referred in uh, by um, an optometrist for retinal hemorrhages and they had no known systemic disease. And one of the things about diabetes is it's very symmetric. Um, it's very unusual to just see complications in one eye. So if I have a patient that I suspect has diabetes on a health examination or even with symptoms, I really only order one test. Um, I only order a hemoglobin A1C. Um, the American Diabetes Association moved away from you know, a fasting glucose um, as being diagnostic. It, it, it's a risk identifier, but it's the hemoglobin A1C, which is the real telltale sign of diabetes. And that number um, gives an average glucose reading that was taken at any time over 90 days. So the, the life of a, blood, a red blood cell in the body is 90 days. And so the hemoglobin A1C can predict what the glucose was at any time. Um, we talk about, you know, normal glucose, normal hemoglobin A1C is generally less than five. So patients who are not diabetic, it's not uncommon to see 4.5 or five. You start thinking about prediabetes, an A1C of five, six to 6.2, um, a hemoglobin A1C of six is equivalent to a glucose of 120. And then we go seven, eight, nine, ten. And for example, a hemoglobin A1C of eight is going to be an average blood sugar of approximately 180, which is clearly diabetic. So how do I explain it to patients? I keep things very simple. I correlate the hemoglobin A1C to the speed limit. Okay. So a normal hemoglobin A1C is let's say 5.5 to 6. That's like driving 60 miles an hour on a highway. Everybody's done it. It's legal. Most folks get to their destination without harm. If I have a patient who's got an A1C of 8, hemoglobin A1C of 8, I tell them, Mrs. Jones, this is like driving 80 miles an hour. Some of us have done it. Some of us get to our destination without harm. But if you drive 80 miles an hour long enough, 
something really bad is going to happen. And the story gets even better when their A1C is 10, which is an average glucose of almost 280. It's like driving 100 miles an hour. So that's how I explain it to my patients. And I think they can understand that. And every time a patient comes into the office that's diabetic, we're always going to ask them, what's your A1C? Exactly. And I, in, the, in the era that we live in, if a diabetic patient does not know their hemoglobin A1C, either A, they're in denial, or B, they need to find a provider that's ordering it because that's the standard from the American Diabetes Association. And there are some practitioners that, that don't draw hemoglobin A1Cs on a regular basis, but um, I'm always encouraged when my patient knows their number because that means that at least they're in tune to their disease, right? It's like glaucoma. You measure the eye pressure of a patient with glaucoma, and the first thing that they ask when you pull away your microscope is, Dr. Gelb, what was my eye pressure? Well, Mrs. Jones, it was 12 and 13. They're into their disease and they get it. So um, I get very worried about patients who don't know their A1Cs. And I'll oftentimes order it myself. The problem is getting them to go, right? But I'll order the A1C myself. And that's why I like, there's, a, there's, there's some uh, home A1C tests that you know some doctors are getting in their office. You can do a hemoglobin A1C in the office. I personally don't do that. But I think that's going to be more and more common as we go forward, just so you have live data to go off your to make your decisions off. When we get into treatment, eye, eye treatment of diabetes, diabetic retinopathy, uh, if you could go through the mild, moderate, severe, and some of the, some, what are the things that the eye doctor, what are the signs that the eye doctor can find inside somebody's eye that is starting to alarm the eye doctor where, okay, this person may need some treatment. So the, the, the first part of, you know, classifying diabetic retinopathy is, you know, we, we look at certain clinical features that are commonly associated with diabetes. We look for hemorrhages or we look for microaneurysms. Uh, that's the first step. The second is we look for, you know, we look at the blood vessels real closely and we look for, you know, caliber changes in blood vessels, which is called venous beating. The third is we look for, you know, irregular blood vessels that are developing the retina, which are called IRMA, which is intraretinal microvascular anomalies. And then the final one is um, new blood vessels in the eye, which is neovascularization, a sign of ischemia. So to classify levels of severity, those are the four features you look for. And depending on you know, the degree of those features, the severity level goes up. And so if a patient's got a couple of, you know, dot hemorrhages in the retina, they have mild non-proliferative disease. If they have dot hemorrhages in two quadrants in the retina, they have moderate. If they have them in four quadrants, that's severe. And then if they have neovascularization, that's PDR. So that's kind of a, a, a brief classification. But what's more important is the follow-up intervals. And we look at risk of vision loss associated with the highest level of retinopathy, which is proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So a person who has mild non-proliferative disease gets counseling, and we see them every year because their risk of developing sight-threatening complications in a year is like 3%. If you take a patient with moderate to severe, their risk of complication goes up. So we follow them 
more closely every six months. We're being proactive as opposed to reactive. Um, but the treatment of diabetic retinopathy has gotten to the point where there's two complications. The first is, you know, blood vessels leaking in the back of the eye. They get clear fluid buildup or swelling in the retina. We have great treatments where we inject medication into the eye to reduce the swelling. And then the proliferative disease, which is new blood vessel growth in the retina. We also have great treatment where we inject medication into the eye. And these injections are, you know, they're done in an outpatient setting. Our surgeons do, you know, 50 to 100 injections a day just because of the overwhelming amount of patients. And, you know, it's, it's scary to, to talk with patients about getting an injection. But in the reality of it, Carrie, you know, these are done under anesthetic. They're painless. They don't hurt at all. And they've really revolutionized what we can do for complications and prevent blindness. Is it? growth factor that happens in the eye that's in the vitreous, a, a part of the eye that's released, that's called VEGF. And that VEGF causes the blood vessels to leak, causes uh, blood vessels to grow, prevents something called apoptosis from happening, which is the, the death of the normal death of cells. If you could talk about VEGF and you, the use of anti-VEGF medication to try to take the to try to shrink some of these blood vessels and how it could help us. So, so VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor is a protein that is secreted into the fluids of the eye in all of us individuals. It's it's a protein that is supposed to be there, and there's there's a lot of benefit to having this protein secretion at a very low level. What happens with diabetes and how I explain it to patients is the, the blood vessels have been damaged due to diabetes and the circulation to the eye has become impaired, which causes the retina to get sick. And when the retina is sick, it doesn't always affect your vision in the beginning, but it causes an increase in the protein secretion, the VEGF. So now you have higher levels of VEGF circulating through the eye. And that's really what is the gasoline on the fire, so to speak. Blood vessels start to break, they bleed, they leak into the retina. So what we have as compounds to treat is called anti-VEGF, which basically stops the production of this protein in the eye and it allows the retina to then function somewhat normally and repair itself. A lot of people think that it's the injection of medicine that, that fixes things. It, it's actually putting the eye in a healthier state temporarily so that it can repair itself because the body's great at repairing itself. You cut your arm, you don't bleed to death, the body scars it over. So we have four, let's see, one, two, three, four. There's about four different uh, variations to the medication and they all work very, very well. The problem the problem is the transient effect, right? So we inject medication into the eye. The half-life of some of these drugs is such that they wear off after about four weeks. And so at the end of four weeks, their retina is still sick. They start producing the protein again, and then they have ongoing complications. So that's where that's why these injections are done so frequently and are so necessary because they have a very short half-life in the eye. I think it's interesting because 
the body's always trying to repair itself and it thinks by making that extra VEGF, it's going to make things better by making more blood vessels and trying to repair the eye, just like some, when someone has a heart attack, VEGF goes up and makes collaterals in, for the heart and many times will actually help somebody who's had a heart attack or maybe in the knee, but in the eye, it actually works against us. Yeah, and the reason that it works against us is because the, the 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 blood vessels that are growing into the eye, and you know what I tell people is you've got impaired blood flow, and so the body's natural response is to bring more circulation into the eye, grow more blood vessels, but that's a bad thing because they're not normal blood vessels. They're very fragile. They run erratically through the eye. They don't have the, you know, the same endothelial cells. They don't have the same makeup and they, 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 they're just very, very destructive. The concept sounds good, but in the eye, it's very, very destructive. What do you think the long-term side effects of doing many, many injections into the eye? You know, that's a, that's a great debate. Uh, that's a great debate. And I, I, I can tell you the long, the, the biggest concern that I have with these injections is, you know, long-term side effects. Um, there's really no long-term side effects. You, you look at risk versus benefit, but my biggest concern is we've got to find a, we've got to find longer acting medications because the complications of these injections, although low, every injection that you give, that patient is at risk of developing infection and developing site-threatening complications. So if you want to reduce complications and you want to reduce the burden, we need longer lasting medications. Um, I don't think we've really seen you know, these compounds have been only only been around for 12, you know, 2007 is when the first injections were done for complications. So we only have 13 years of data on long term complications. But I have patients that have had over 150 procedures per eye over seven or eight years, and still are functioning very well. The good news is, there's a lot of advancement looking at longer acting medications and reducing the need for these procedures every month. Um, there's, one, there's one device that's called a port delivery system where you surgically implant kind of a little reservoir and then you fill the reservoir with the drug and then it slowly emits the anti-VEGF into the eye over six months to a year. That's one surgical procedure, low risk and could potentially give a year's benefit. So I think it's not so much long-term effects being negative. It's just, we have to find a better way to reduce the burden. And that takes us back to, if you want to prevent complications of diabetes, prevent diabetes, right? Capture that, that pre-diabetic group and keep them on the other side of the fence. That's how we do it. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural and it's a good product. 
time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.